God never speaks with more clarity or authority than he does in the reading of his word. I invite you to give your attention as we read Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes with, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Oh, Father, we come before you and bow before you and ask you to do what you only can do. Guide us, O oh Lord, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom in your will, discover your peace. Teach us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if there's, a, if there's an upside to a pandemic, it's that you got more house projects done, Ben. Um, or maybe you read another book or two that has been waiting you. That's, I did a little of both. One of the, uh, one of the books that made uh, its way to the top and um, altered my life a bit is a book entitled Endurance by Alfred Lansing. It's the story of Ernest Shackleton, which will sound familiar to some of you, perhaps. Ernest Shackleton uh, took a crew of 26 for what was to have been the very first Trans-Antarctica expedition. That was the plan. That was the sketched out hope and dream of a, of, a, of a crew that in 1914 took sail and, and ended up in Antarctica. 
And uh, at the risk of spoiling the story, but it is history after all, uh, the story is told, it is before you, it's unchanging. And some of you do know that that trans-Antarctic expedition never happened. Well, they got there, but, but what they sought out to do, they were unable to do. And what they did instead is actually more spectacular when that they had, than that they had ever hoped to achieve. Uh, the boat, Endurance was the name of the boat, and that boat was trapped and crushed by pack ice, which I now have a healthy respect for. Pack ice in Antarctica crushed a sailing vessel, and it, and it destroyed it and left it frozen. And so this band of 26-plus and a few dogs made this effort to survive. It's an epic story of struggle, if there ever was one. Uh, weather conditions, dwindling food supply, and literally no one knew where they were. Literally. An epic story of struggle that is a fascinating account of endurance, literally, but also how to live through struggle with endurance. You know, you could live for a while in this world with the illusion, under the illusion, that you can go through life in this world without struggle. Now, I, I might have said that without qualifying it only a few weeks ago. But the reality of <clears throat> the, the thought of living in this world without struggle and being able to say that may be entirely due to the color of my skin. Because what we have learned is that there's different kinds of struggle. There's the struggle that is episodic, that is occasional, that maybe you are living between two struggles right now. There's a kind of struggle that is lifelong for many. But whether your struggle is episodic or lifelong, the reality is that we need a path. And we need something more than endurance. We need someone with us in the struggle. Our nation needs a path, it seems. We're looking for statesmen that will show us the way through this national collective struggle. But whether it's national or as localized as your own skin and life, Struggle is real, and it is before us. When we come to Psalm 25, we find what has been described as a song of wisdom and a song of struggle that includes a personal lament. It's really a mixed bag. It is a psalm of wisdom in one sense, but there's enough lament in this psalm that you step into David's world as you then step into yours and learn something about your own struggle from his. Picture this. You're hiking off trail, so there's no path. You have a sprained ankle and no water. That's a bit of a dilemma, stretching the, the image a bit, but that's not unlike what David is describing. At best, the struggle that you and I experience in this world impairs our walk. 
It impairs our ability to walk well. Struggle does that. At worst, struggle can derail us along the way. And in every case, we need to pay attention to struggle and to learn what God would have us know as we seek to walk in the truth as we struggle. That's what this psalm is about. What does it look like to walk in truth while we struggle? Psalm 1 is where all the psalms begin, right? You might think of Psalm 1 as a signpost which directs the wise person to the choice of the right road. That's really what Psalm 1 is about. Psalm 25, we might think of as a companion psalm for use along the way. So Psalm 1 lays before us two roads. Psalm 25 becomes a a companion guide for us while we are on that way because struggle will happen. Troubles will come. And then what do we do? What we learn with David is that God will never let you down, friends. He will never let you down while you learn what it means to walk in the truth in struggle. He'll never let you down. I'm going to get at this, try to get at this, by asking three questions and and answering them with you. The questions are these. What is the nature of our struggle? What is the nature of our struggle in this world? What do we need in the midst of that struggle? And how do we move through that struggle into a place of hope? What is the nature of our struggle? What do we need in the midst of that struggle? And how do we move through that struggle to a place of hope? What is the, what is the nature of our struggle? When we read through this psalm, we learn two things about struggle. We learn first that struggle is real. Struggle is real. Now, I don't have to tell some of you that struggle is real. There are philosophies in the world and religions that would suggest that struggle is something of a way of thinking and an illusion, that if we can just get around that way of thinking, we come out in a better place. But what we see in David's life as he describes his own struggle is that struggle is real. We see that when he looks around and he sees enemies. He sees enemies, foes. He's talking about real people with weapons who are out to get him. That may not be your struggle. Uh, You may have foes and enemies that have maybe not weapons. They may have words. They may have other ways of undermining you and crushing you. But we have struggles in this world. It's a broken world. It is not as God designed this world. And beginning with Cain and Abel, we begin to see how fractured the world is and is now. Uh, It's real. When he looks around, he sees darkness and he doesn't see the path. and, And that's a reality. And if you've ever been lost in the woods at night, you get a little bit of an idea of how David's describing his own walk right now. It's a real struggle. But but the struggles are not only real. The second thing, as we learn from this, is that struggle is powerful. The struggles that you encounter have a power and an ability to, let's say, knock you off your feet. Or another metaphor is pull the rug out from under you. 
struggles are powerful and they come at us and they do damage. They, they damage us and so they impair us in some way and they inflict something upon us. Uh, what we read about as David describes his struggles, verse 17, he calls them distress. That's the power of struggle. It creates a distress in my life where, where, where there was a placid sort of alignment of all the pieces of my life, like a calm sea, it's now turbulent. And as the crew of endurance figured out, turbulent waves are difficult. And so is life in this world, distress and anxiety and misery. He describes himself as lonely. And we know what that's like. We know what it's like to be alone. We know what it's like to be lonely. But the loneliness and the aloneness is magnified when we're alone in struggle. When things are going well and we're alone, I can handle that. But when, 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 when we are lonely in the midst of struggle, it is unbearable. The nature of our struggles are real and they are powerful. And you recognize some of those, right? I mean, you've been there or maybe you are there. So what do we need? What is it that we need in the midst of struggle? We can look at this when we see what David prays for. And actually, that's what this is. It's a prayer. And David's prayer is there for you and me to pray. That's how the Psalms work, by the way. We're not simply eavesdropping on David's life. We're invited to take David's vocabulary and make it our own. And what does David cry out for? It's curious that he doesn't use a word that even resembles endurance. I mean, that's where I'm going. In the midst of struggle, what do I need? Endurance. When I'm on a long, long, long bike ride of sorts or a long, long hike, what I need is endurance and stamina to, to get through. David doesn't exactly word it that way. Now, that may be a benefit or a, 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 a fruit of what he does pray, but what he's praying in the midst of struggle is not for endurance. He prays for, first for rescue. Look at verse 15. He says, pluck my feet out of the net. I'm trapped, and I can't get out of this net. Would you help me get out of this net? Because I can't. Verse 17, he says, bring me out of my distress. Not just look at me in my distress, but bring me out of it. Uh, verse 20, guard my soul and deliver me. Get me through this. Get me in a better place. And he's praying for, praying for rescue. Just as that crew of endurance would have certainly recognized, they need something that they don't have. And David prays for rescue. Now, the, the dilemma that, that, you, that I know where your head is going right now, when, 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 when we say, God, pluck my feet out of the net, bring me out of my stress, we have a timetable in mind that is not always his. And sometimes for reasons that are unknown to us, he leaves us in the struggle. 
And the struggle that is battering at your soul may be an old one. But the prayer is the same. Lord, deliver my feet from the net. Pluck my feet. Bring me out. And we fall, we fall back, and we'll get to this in a moment, we fall back into the character of the rescuer. Not so much his timing, but his character and his promise. That's the first thing, though. In the midst of struggle, what do we need? We need rescue. We need to get undone from the net that has, its, has us wrapped up. But the thing that David prays for with the most, using the most words, it seems, in this, in this psalm is he prays for guidance. He's looking for guidance to know how to, to live through this struggle. He says, look, look for a moment at verses 4 and 5. Here it is. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Teach me, show me, make me know. Uh, I need guidance. One, one translation of verse 4 puts it like this. Show me the path where I should walk, O Lord. Point out the right road for me to follow. Michael Wilcock is a um, commentator, and uh, as he comes to Psalm 25, here's what he offers us. Psalm 25 has a good deal, good deal to say about guiding and showing, about paths and ways, and specifically about God showing His ways to us. When we ask for guidance, and we do and we will, when we ask for guidance, we may have in mind a particular kind of situation, such as, namely, facing some personal choice which warrants a special pointer from God. The pointer is needed, we feel, when an important decision is to be made and both possibilities seem equally good, but neither seems obviously right. So we need some handwriting on the wall. But that's, that's not what Psalm 25 is about when he, when he writes and asks God to show him his ways. You see, when we set the guidance text in Psalm 25, and there are several, I read a few, when we set those in the context of the whole psalm, which is important, and we read that against the background of Psalm 1, remember? A different picture emerges, for it's out of Psalm 1 that Psalm 25 grows. Both, as I said, are wisdom poetry. Both say, if you are wise, these are the down-to-earth practical ways in which you will walk. You'll choose the way of the righteous, not the way of the wicked. Both point forward to the regular way the New Testament uses the word walk. Paul uses it all the time as a metaphor for practical Christian living. The guidance that David prays for is what we would call practical Christian living. How do we exercise good judgment along the way? How do we use our reason and we are made as rational creatures in the image of God who comes to us with his word and says, here. I love the way uh, John Newton, this is from a book entitled The Letters of John Newton, which is uh, chock full of uh, helpful ways of thinking about a number of topics. And when it comes to guidance, this is what he says. He asks the question, how then may the Lord's guidance be expected? And here's his answer. 
In general, God guides and directs his people by affording them in answer to prayer, David prays, the light of his Holy Spirit, which enables them to understand and to love the scriptures. The word of God is not to be used as a lottery, nor is it designed to instruct us by shreds and scraps, taking a verse here and a verse there, which detached from their proper places have no determinate import but it is to furnish us with just principles and right apprehensions to regulate our judgments and affections and thereby to influence and direct our conduct. You won't find a specific verse getting you through a specific struggle, probably. But there are principles, there are apprehensions that that if once we take them on, influence and direct our conduct... He says, the word of God dwells richly in them as a preservative from error, a light to their feet, and a spring of strength and consolation. By treasuring up the doctrines, precepts, promises, examples, and exhortations of Scripture in our minds, and daily comparing ourselves with the rule by which we walk, we grow into an habitual frame of spiritual wisdom. We grow in wisdom. We grow in knowledge and we acquire a gracious taste which enables us to judge right and wrong with a degree of readiness and certainty as a musical ear judges sounds. It's a beautiful picture. It's a little bit what a friend of mine when reading Romans 12 says, let your mind be renewed. He says what we do is we study God's word And we use then some sanctified common sense as we live our life in this world. Sanctified and guided by what we do know to be true. Bringing the principles and the apprehensions to bear as we live our life in this world. Uh, And John Newton touched on two things. There's actually two ways he gives us his guidance. One is the word of God. And John Newton used the word spirit, didn't he? Did you hear that? The Word and the Spirit are where the guidance comes from as we learn to walk in the truth while we struggle. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 1, we read, verse 23, I will pour out my Spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Do you hear it there? I will pour out my Spirit. I will make my words known to you. They, they belong together. In fact, we would assert that to the degree that God uses the reading of his word in any sermon that you happen to participate in with your ears and hearts today, it's because the spirit of God takes the truth of God and applies it to the hearts of the people of God. That's our hope and prayer as we gather here week by week, that it's the spirit who does that work. Proverbs 2, wisdom will come into your heart. Wisdom will come into your heart. That new heart that we read about in Ezekiel 36. And if you read that whole context and it was there, go back and look at it. I will give you a new heart. I will cause my spirit to live in you. And that and he will cause you to what? To walk. It is the spirit who orders our steps, informs our mind and guides our steps. It's word and spirit. That's where the guidance comes from. That's how God guides his people. But I have a question before we go any further. 
And it's this. Are you assured that the will of God is better than what you want for your life? Are you convinced of that? Are you assured that what God will reveal in his word is better than what you want for your life? That's where David is. That's where he invites us to go. But no sooner does he declare, does, no sooner does he declare, say yes to that and say, that's what I want. I want to know the will of God. And I want to walk in his ways. No sooner does he declare his purpose to walk in those ways that he recalls his failure to do so. So it's not only guidance, it's not only deliverance that we need in the midst of our struggle with David, we need forgiveness. Michael Wilcock again says, if David cannot see the way ahead, it is as likely due to his own bias towards sin as it is to the antagonism of others. If he can't see the way, it's more, more likely that it's due to the brokenness of his own life. That's why in verses 6 and 7 he says, remember not my sins. Remember your mercy, but don't remember my sins. That's why in Psalm 51, which we heard earlier, Dave, the same David cries out and says, hide your face from my sins. Because he knows he needs forgiveness. It's not enough to know which way to walk and how to walk. It's taken into account that there's something broken in us that won't get there. So he prays for forgiveness. Spurgeon on this passage says, <clears throat> we are usually tempted in seasons of affliction or struggle to fear that our God has forgotten us or forgotten his usual kindness towards us. Is that you? Have you gotten to a place in your, your intent to walk in the truth that your struggle raises another question? Has God forgotten me because of my failure? Has he, has he dropped me into another category of potential objects of his affection? I want to love you. I want to meet you where you are. But, but if you're not going to meet me halfway, then I don't know. Is that how you hear God's response to your own failures? I love the way Spurgeon put it. That we have a tendency to think that he has forgotten his usual kindness towards us. But you know that's not the end of the story. He does respond to our struggle. He responds to our sin. And we're about to get there. So that's the nature of our struggle. That's what we need in the midst of struggle. We need rescue. We need guidance. We need forgiveness. So then how do we move through this struggle? I've already hinted at it a little bit. But we see David taking three postures 
at least, in this psalm. The first thing that we see in David that shows us how we are to move through this struggle is that we are to have what David displays and what I'll call a patient confidence. You see, underlying these pleas for protection and guidance and forgiveness, as he pleads, there, there's, a, there's an assumption or a conviction underneath. And it's this. David prays those prayers. He makes those pleas because he believes that God is the sort of God who will do it. He's learned enough about God to know that he is faithful to his promises and that he is present even when it's not obvious. There's a conviction that underlies those pleas. And so the question is, what is the conviction that underlies the prayers of your heart, the cries of your heart? Do you know, like David, that there's a God underneath it all and above it all that hears those prayers, hears those cries in the midst of struggle, and he moves toward you? David's convinced of it. You see, you don't trust a person unless you really know him. I mean, right? You don't trust some until you really know them. And that generally takes some time and some case studies. Is this someone that I can trust? And relationships will bear that out. Time will bear it out. And if you're about to hire someone, you don't have time. You've got to rely on something. What is it? References. That's why you've been asked to fill and supply references when you go for a job interview. Is this someone I can trust? Does she do what she says? Who knows this person better than I do? There's, there's, that's underneath it. And what we find in David's words here, in verse 8, he says, Good and upright are you, O Lord. Your, yours, Lord, is a character that shows that I can trust you. That's the confidence that he has in the midst of struggle. But what did I call it? A patient confidence. Because God's timetable is not ours most of the time. Have you noticed? And so he says, verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. And he expands that in verses 3, 5, and 21 when he says, People who wait on you win. And so I wait on you. I'm waiting on you. I wait for you all the day long. I wait for you, verse 21. And in verse 15, we see this picture where he says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. You see that posture of waiting? My eyes are fixed on the horizon, knowing that you are there, that that redemption is there, that deliverance and rescue is there. And there's my hope. It's a patient confidence. But it's not just a patient confidence. There's one more thing, two more things that David gives us as we look at his posture. We see him patiently, confidently waiting. But we see a ready obedience. And I've already hinted at this, verses 4 and 5. When, when David says, show me and teach me, what, can't you hear behind those words? I want to know because I want to do something with which you show me. I'm ready to obey. I'm ready to follow. Here's a principle that I've borrowed from Eric Alexander. 
on this text. Are you ready? Consecration of ourselves to do the will of God must always precede the desire to know it. Consecration of ourselves to do the will of God must always precede the desire to know it. Here's another way of saying that. We cannot pretend that we are waiting on God if we do not want to do what He asks. Oh. <laughs> we can't pretend that we're waiting if we're not ready to do what He asks. Have you ever um, been asked this question, will you do something for me? Of course you have. Will you do something for me? Well, what, is, what goes through your mind? Well, uh, it depends. You know, it's typically our answer. Unless it's someone that you know and trust, and so far they've, they've not asked you to do things that are impossible. But you want to say it depends on what you're asking me to do. That's a, that, you know what that is? That is a qualified commitment. That's what that is. It's reasonable. But that qualified commitment that is reasonable in a lot of situations, when we move that over and we're talking about God, it's slanderous. It's actually slanderous of God's character when we say, well, it depends. Because David has gone on record, as have most of you, that God is good. That we, under, we don't understand His ways, but we know He is good. And when God asks us to do something, we don't respond with a qualified, it depends. So how do we move through struggle to hope with patient confidence, a ready obedience? And finally, a larger story. That's how we move through struggle. There's a larger story that, that we get a hint at when David uses the word and he refers to the covenant a couple of times. And that is the reality that God, who we, we are asking him to show us how to walk in truth in the midst of struggle, is one who has already bound himself to us with his steadfast, committed love. There's a larger story, and it's the story of, of a people and a God who took that people and said, I will be yours and you will be mine. And that larger story comes to the surface in the midst of David's struggles when he's reminding himself that this is a God who's already bound himself to me. But that larger story and the suffering and struggling that David is now experiencing has another element to it. When you take this last section and you, and you read through these, these prayers of David in the last several verses, what you see is a recognition of forces arrayed against the one who seeks to learn God's ways. He calls them enemies, right? My enemies, my foes, they're real. Count them. 
deal with them. There are enemies arrayed against the one who seeks to learn God's way. And these enemies who see this as this precious intimacy between a believer and his Lord as their key target. And the enemies that have surrounded David pale, friends, in comparison to the enemy who arrayed all of his forces against another one. You see, as David prays and he describes distress and troubles, a heart enlarged, a heart exploding with the difficult moment in which he's living, it's a bit of a foreshadow. Like a lot of scripture, it's a bit of a foreshadow. If you were to read, and I would invite you to take a look later at Mark 14, where you see Jesus describing his life, and he describes it as distressed and troubled because of the enemy that had arrayed all of his force to undermine, to pull the rug out from under a plan of redemption. And the purposes of God to meet, a, to meet another one who would struggle. Who would struggle as you and I never will struggle. Whose, struggle, whose walk was impaired, can we say, by the weight of the sin of the world. Who took that struggle upon himself. You see, it would be David's greater son who would answer David's plea for protection and deliverance and guidance. And life. In verses 21 and 22, we get a clue, a clue of this larger story when he says integrity and uprightness preserve me. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. But you know what? David doesn't have enough integrity and uprightness to preserve himself. But the one who struggled in his place on a cross is the one whose life is marked by integrity and uprightness. And so David's prayer is answered. Yes, David, integrity and uprightness did preserve you. It does preserve you, church. Integrity and uprightness preserves you in the midst of struggle and enables you to walk well in the midst of struggle, but it's not your own. It's not your own integrity and uprightness and resolve to get through this unscathed. It's the one who walked through it who was everything but unscathed, who took the blows that David's enemies were ready to deliver to him, but on a, but a much massive, more massive scale. You know, we don't fully understand the Psalms until we ask a question. How does Jesus sing this Psalm? I don't have to stretch my imagination to think that as Christ entered a garden of Gethsemane, that maybe he prayed 
Turn to me, Father, my troubles, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. As we do know, he said, if there's any other way, I'd like to hear it. Consider my affliction and my trouble. He did not pray, forgive all my sins, because it was David's sins and our sins that has him there. Consider how many are my foes and what violent hatred they hate me. David's words became Jesus' words as they become our words. But the story doesn't end with a struggling, suffering Savior, does it? Christ, who sang in suffering these words, perhaps, sings now in triumph. He sings these words, but in triumph. And he joins his voice with ours as we sing and David's as he prays. Say, that, that struggle, that, 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 that request for forgiveness and deliverance, that's what I've done. I have met you in your struggle. And because of that, there is no struggle. There is nothing in this world that can separate you. You will not be abandoned as you walk in this world between your struggles. Or even if that struggle is lifelong, that you are not alone. Finding the way to God doesn't require insight, speculation, or some kind of spiritual sextant as the crew of endurance used. It's not a set of principles. It's not some tips for living well in this world. The way to finding your way is to find the one who is the way. A person. The person who knows your name. And he knows your struggle. And he comes to you in the midst of that struggle and says, look at me. Eyes fixed here on the one who loves you. The one who is undoing the brokenness of this world and the struggle that is yours today. Um, And in that moment, in that reality, we will be able to say with the Apostle John, as we read earlier, that your children are walking in truth. Because we're made your children by the wonder of your forever love. And we walk in truth, united to you by faith. That's the way we do this. Patient endurance and a redeemer who calls you by name. Father, would you work those purposes out in our own lives that we might see you in your beauty to see you in your presence that what we have to bring to you today is hearts that are in need of forgiveness and we find that in you that the hearts that want to obey and that is a result of your spirit at work in us so the spirit that you have implanted in us do continue to do that work to cause us to walk in your ways with hearts that are made alive with joy because of the goodness of our God. 
and the beauty of our Redeemer, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.